0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell.
1: Hi, welcome back to Money & Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and with me is Laura from AJ Bell. Hi. This week we're going to cover the recent rumblings with star fund manager Neil Woodford, why Norway is dumping oil, We're going to look at how you can use your shares to do good for charity. And finally, why envelopes are out of favour and popcorn is in and how that actually relates to money.
0: So this week, we're joined by Ryan Hughes from AJ Bell. Thanks for coming in.
2: Hi
1: there.
0: So firstly, let's look at what's been happening in the markets this week, Dan.
1: So I've, uh, against this backdrop of... Um, uncertainty with Brexit, and at the time of recording, we still don't know what's going on, but it might you might know something by the time you listen to it. Um, I kind of noticed that Unilever is now worth three times as much than Kraft Heinz. So if you go back a couple of years ago, Kraft Heinz made a takeover bid for £115 billion pounds for Unilever. Um, So the deal fell apart because everyone was worried about the high levels of debt Kraft Heinz would have to have to fund the deal. Um, But now that Kraft Heinz has had uh, a lot of problems, it's reported a big loss, it cut its dividend, it's looking at asset sales. So can, can the tables turn with, with Unilever going from prey to predator? Um, there's been nothing announced in the market on this. This is, is pure sort of speculation um, amongst people in the city, but um, it's certainly a different scenario. Uh, and I guess you have to ask, does Unilever want to own Kraft Heinz? It could certainly pounce on it while it's cheap, um, potentially break it up at a later point because i'm sure there's some brands it doesn't want to own in there but it's certainly um an interesting perspective um and one i haven't seen a lot of people talk about but i imagine it might come up on the agenda bit in the future
0: and presumably some of the logic of one company taking over the other works the reverse way around as well in terms of cost efficiencies and alignment of brands and things like that
1: yeah also you know, companies like to take each other over because they think that there are sort of big synergies there um you know combined buying power and stuff like that for for raw materials um but they would certainly be some brands within Kraft Heinz portfolio that people don't want because you have to go back to ask why is Kraft Heinz shares not doing very well at the moment because it's having some problems um and perhaps some of its sort of well-known things aren't really relevant in today's world and
2: some some of the uh It's perhaps surprising over the last couple of years there hasn't been more big uh, M&A. It's certainly been a theme that's been talked about uh, for the last couple of years. And we haven't really seen too many big mega companies no. uh, merge or take one or another over and that might be to do with uh, extreme differences in the currency markets at the moment where uh, a very very strong dollar is actually making some US listed companies look very very expensive if someone outside of the US is interested in, uh, in buying them and in theory it should work the other way that maybe UK businesses or European businesses will actually look very very cheap to US companies because of the, the strength of the dollar and the weakness of the sterling and the euro.
0: So, on to other news this week. Star fund manager Neil Woodford has hit the headlines in the past couple of weeks, and it's not all been complimentary. So, the fund manager made a switch in his flagship equity income fund, which had built up a large number of small company holdings in it. Um, So, to cut quite a long story short, he essentially swapped a chunk of those small holdings for a stake in his investment trust, Patient Capital. So, it means that his equity income fund now holds a stake in Patient Capital, and the argument put forward by Woodford is that the investment trust is a better vehicle to hold those small company holdings in. Um, that's a very brief run through, but Ryan is going to give us more. So, Ryan, firstly, is it a sensible move?
2: I think, on the face of it, it is a sensible move. If we think about some of the criticisms that Woodford has had for the performance and the structure of the equity income fund over the last couple of years, it's because there's been a high allocation to not only small companies but also unquoted companies so those companies that aren't listed on the stock market uh, and at the same time he's had difficulty with performance uh, and that's resulted in some investors selling out of the fund we've actually seen the fund size go from 10.2 billion uh, a year ago to 4.6 billion today it's a massive drop isn't it, it is some of that's due to performance uh, but also some of that is due to outflows now as the managers got outflows he obviously has to sell some of his stocks. The problem he has with his small cap and unquoted is that they're illiquid. Uh, and maybe he can't sell enough of them, or he can't sell them fast enough, or he can't sell them at a price that he wants, that is attractive and he wants to get. Uh, and as a result, that might mean that he ends up having to sell some of the larger, more liquid companies, which thus increases the weight towards the small companies. So. This move mitigates some of those problems by really getting the allocation from the investment trust, because there that is very well suited to illiquid uh, and unquoted companies, because every time there's a buy and sell of the investment trust, the underlying shares don't need to trade. Uh, And so this is it seems a sensible move to me. Uh, There's still a few things to iron out uh, in it, but this does mitigate one of the key kind of structural problems that we've seen with the Equity Income Fund.
0: Presumably he now owns a fairly sizable stake of the trust then? Within the income fund.
2: So this is a this is an initial step. It's a relatively small initial purchase. The the figure I think it was seventy three million pounds swapped into the trust in terms of assets and an extra six million pounds of cash. He's also said that he expects to do more uh, over the coming months to again reduce the direct exposure to very small illiquid and unquoted companies. So we might see that allocation to patient capital increase over the next few months.
1: I guess the the other question is what why is an income fund investing in illiquid companies that don't pay a dividend. I, I, there was an article in Sunday Times that said only that 26 out of the 90 companies in the, the equity income fund pay a dividend. So you know, I'm sure the investors say, I'll, I'll, I'll buy, put some money into an income fund because I, I assume that it's going to be investing in dividend-paying companies. And it turns out that's not quite the case. Um, should we be shocked or actually... Is the description of funds sort of saying they can do whatever they want?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think of the fund more of, of a growth as a growth and income fund. Um, investors shouldn't be shocked. It's been clear to see from day one how. Woodford invests. Uh, He's very open about how he invests. It was clear when he launched the fund that he would have exposure to these type of companies. So it's, I think it highlights the importance of doing your research, doing your, doing your due diligence before you invest. So you know what type of exposure uh, you're getting. Uh, and you know, if you are looking at it as a pure high income fund, well, yeah, they have very different companies in there, many of which don't pay an in income.
0: And I guess this is part of the issue of the star fund manager culture, because you're talking there about how he has a distinct style that is quite different to other equity income fund managers. Um, But I guess there is a danger when you get this kind of star culture around a fund manager that people buy the fund without fully realising that that's how he's going to operate and are then alarmed maybe if that is the case.
2: Absolutely. Again, it highlights the importance of due diligence. uh, And uh, for me, it highlights that you you should never learn how a manager invests after you've given them any money you should do all of that work up front it takes a bit of time but this avoids you falling into this problem of being surprised when perhaps you, you didn't know that he had such an allocation to illiquid companies and of course you know, we're very lucky in our day job as researching managers that we get access to lots and lots of information. Uh, but the information is out there for investors and, and Woodford is probably more transparent about his fund and his holdings than any other manager in the market. So. The, it's all there to find and research uh, and look at, and it highlights you must do that before you invest.
1: And so there's so if you go onto Woodford's website, um, it does actually list everything. Um, and you can click on each company, and generally there's like a write-up of what they've been up to. Um, and it's, I've looked around for lots of other funds and it is completely different, isn't it? So in terms of transparency. Um, so I, you know, it's a very good point, isn't it? That you, you, if you simply look at its website, um, you've got everything you need to know. Um, and it sort of surprised me that the top 10 had a, a loss-making biotech company in there and an unlisted artificial intelligence group. You know, that really, you don't expect that in an income
2: fund. But You, you don't you know. expect it, but I think he should be applauded for the fact that he is, I think, more transparent than pretty much any other fund manager in the market that does mean he's there to be shot at when some of these stocks don't go as he wants and and don't go well uh, because other managers you know being brutally honest I think a lot of they go through the same problems and these stocks are hidden in the portfolio because most people don't see them because they're not in the top 10 so for me he does get a big tick for transparency and I wish that all other managers would follow
0: and on the transparency point of view so this um buying into his own investment trust is that something that shareholders or unit holders in the equity income fund get a chance to vote on or approve a deal because to some it might seem like he's using some of the funds money to buy an investment trust that he also runs and there might be some governance issues around that
2: yeah i mean that there are these the rules around this are, are fairly clear so no underlying unit holders shareholders don't get a vote on it the, the the power to make those decisions is with the manager but equally there is strong governance around how funds operate and how trusts operate to make sure that that's done done fairly and there is no conflict of interest and it's actually not unusual for fund managers to buy exposure into perhaps another fund within the same group and sometimes another fund that they that they run themselves to gain certain exposure for for the portfolio so this is certainly not a unique situation uh, there and there the rules are very clear to make sure there isn't a conflict of interest.
0: But what about the price that he paid for it? So at the time that the first switch happened, patient capital, the investment trust was on a 13% discount, wasn't it? Which means that you could buy the shares for less than the value of the underlying assets. But he paid kind of what is called par price. So yeah. he paid the net asset value. So he paid more than you or I buying shares on the same day would have paid. Is that does that stick with governance rules?
2: Well, I think what they did was was very carefully look at how much it would have cost to gain exposure to the companies that he was swapping into the Patient Capital Trust, uh, and the judgment was that over time it would have cost more uh, than than the price you could buy Patient Capital. So therefore, he's been he's been fair to the unit holders of equity income. Obviously, they're, they're swapping one asset for another effectively. And they've done that at at the, the, the fair net asset value of those stocks. Now, yes, you could, of course, buy those at uh, at a discount. But would that be fair you know, as well? Would that be completely the, r- the right way of doing it? I think by paying full NAV, they've been, again, very transparent you know, about that uh, and haven't looked to seek any advantage uh, that the market might have offered them.
0: And you've been out and about speaking to lots of advisors and end investors um, recently. Been on the road. We've barely seen you. Um, <laughs> but what's their their reaction been to it? Because obviously, so much conversation in the investment community and in newspapers and money sections goes towards Woodford and what he's doing. So, what's the kind of general vibe among investors at the moment?
2: Yeah, I think I think from from what I see and the people I've spoken to, it's. The bigger picture is what does, does it come down to? Are illiquid companies well suited to open ended structures? Uh, and our feedback has always been we don't think they are, that we prefer them in a closed ended structure uh, because it stops this underlying need to trade the companies if there isn't someone on the other side of the deal. So that it that certainly ticks a, a box from that perspective. Now you can there'll be differences of opinion about whether the price paid is the, is the right price that's been paid, uh, whether there is a conflict of interest, whether the fees are correct. You know, that's all for people to to form their own opinion. Uh, but I think on the whole, if we took at the broad point around suitability of illiquid assets, this seems like a sensible move.
0: So from one big investment switch to another, so Norway this week announced that it's going to cut its oil holdings, which for such an oil-focused nation is pretty big news. So Dan, why is it making this move?
1: So it's got a $1 trillion sovereign wealth fund um, and it says it's going to sell some of its oil and gas holdings for financial reasons rather than environmental ones. It's, it's kind of concerned about the future of the oil price but really if you, if you take a step back it's worried about the oil price because um, there's concerns over the very long term that oil demand will fall as we switch to renewable energy um, and therefore it, it, it does have an environmental impact. So. What it's going to do is look for companies in its portfolio which look for and develop oil fields. Um, But it's not going to sell out of the bigger companies which also do stuff like marketing and refining. Um, So really, if you think it's got BP and Shell in its portfolio, they look safe. Um, But you may ask which ones are going to potentially leave its portfolio. So I've, I've, I've had a look and you can see eight stocks on the London Stock Exchange. Um, which look like they're vulnerable. So these include Cairn Energy, Tullo Oil, um, Gulf Sands Petroleum and Ophir. Um, so it, it's not going to do these automatically. It's not just going to dump all these holdings in one day. It's, it's going to be sort of a slow process, but it's 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 quite an interesting move. And I think it sort of sent this message to the world. Um, look how serious um, a big, big player in the oil uh, investment industry is changing its views about what's going on so I think in the last sort of couple of weeks we've had things like Glencore the mining company come out saying it's going to put a cap on its coal production because it's bowing to investor concerns about climate change um, HSBC has been under pressure from investors about um, they want it to end financing for all coal-fired power stations. So I think you know ESG is really, really quite big at the moment. I'm sure Ryan, in your um, sort of field of looking at funds, um, there's definitely people talking about it, aren't there? And people are looking to launch new funds in this area. And um, you know, there's a true investor demand, isn't there? Absolutely, course,
2: e- ESG is I think the hottest topic uh, in in investment really over the last 12 months we're seeing um all the big asset managers who didn't really talk about esg uh, in any of their presentations uh, it's now on the first page you know we think about esg when we when we fact- think about all of our different investments now now how that how much they do that will differ from manager to manager uh, and uh, when we're looking at these types of strategies We really like to see managers who have it embedded in the core culture of their investment approach rather than, dare I say it just maybe doing it maybe for cosmetic reasons Mm. uh, at the moment when it feels like maybe there's a little bit of that going on Uh, but it's certainly changing and I think it we are this is a one-way street now ESG will become mainstream probably quite quickly.
1: For those who who perhaps aren't familiar with the term so it's the E is environmental the S is social and the G is governance Um, so there are some quite easy ways of looking at it from an investment perspective. So the environmental side is probably the easiest bit to understand. So investors will look at a company's carbon footprint, its use of renewable energy, and about the amount of waste that it produces. Um, so on the social side, uh, a firm needs to produce goods and services that don't harm society, and the company needs to operate in an ethical way. Um, and then on the on sort of the governance side, you're looking at how uh, effectively the board of directors are able to hold companies management to account sort of making sure they don't pay themselves loads of money um, and and then they're doing their job properly and they've got like an an ethical policy and there's like things like boardroom diversity and that sort of stuff so if you if you sort of link all those together um, you could see that there's companies could easily sort of switch their boardroom diversity quite quickly but the rest of it is is a bit harder to achieve Um, and ultimately there's increasingly thought that um, if you've got good ESG policies, actually that, that's a decent business and therefore you're doing the right thing um, and you, you could get better rewards in the long term. I guess we just need more figures to sort of prove that, don't we? So. Mm-hmm.
2: We do. I think also what's important to remember with, the, with these factors is if you are investing in any strategy that, that thinks about ES, ESG, uh, it doesn't mean that companies that don't meet those criteria will necessarily be avoided. Uh, It may well be, you might be surprised to think that maybe there will be a miner uh, held in a fund or an an index that thinks about ESG and you think, well, how can that be? It's uh, digging stuff out the ground, it pollutes, it's not sustainable. Uh, This is more about how they engage with companies and how companies are on a journey moving from maybe not thinking about these things to really incorporating them in the future. So it's not a black or white, you either meet these criteria or you don't. There's quite a few shades of grey at the moment as really the industry and in settles down in how to think about it.
1: Yeah, I, I, I was interviewing um, the chief exec of a gold miner
2: the other day and they said that they'd just come back
1: from a conference and they said, well, well I was asking, well, what, what were the questions that fund managers were asking you? They said, they were all about ESG. And I sort of made that point. I said, hang on a minute, you're digging stuff out the ground. You're kind of ruining the nice countryside. And they went, well, no, it's all, it's all about um, what do we do to help the local communities? Um, what, you know, the, the money that we donate to help um, sort of develop sort of local businesses. Uh, and obviously when, when you've had a mine, there's rules about like, you know, if you've got a big coal pit, you have to fill it in uh, a, you know, lots of them are being turned into lakes you know, mm. near where my mum and dad live um, in the West Country, in the UK. Um, there's a huge quarry and it's now turned into this massive um, attraction for people to do outdoor swimming because they filled it in and it's like, it, it, and it's totally changed it all. But you know, I guess in the, in the process of extracting the, the material, it's ugly. Um, but it, it, you know, the companies are doing their, well, trying to do their best to, to make sure they're not leaving a permanent sort of blot on the mm. landscape
0: so the tax year end is nearing and looming upon us so people are looking at their portfolios but Dan's got a good tip on how to make your small share portfolios do some good
1: yeah I mean I I I was thinking about this um, fairly recently but then as if by magic on social media, I saw the boss of um, an activist investor called Crystal Amber um, saying that they donated £750,000 worth of their shares to charity um, over the last year. And they were they were calling for, they said, well, come on, FTSE 100 companies, you could all do this. So if they all gave the same amount, you know, that's £75 million they give to charity. Um, but actually... Retail inve- investors, like you and I, the general public, um, quite often have very small amounts of shares in your portfolio. Um, you're thinking, what, what should I really do with these? It might be that you, you're just dabbling with something and, and you decided not to buy too many, or something um, you've sold a few, and there's, there's a few little ones left. But actually, there's, there's a charity called ShareGift where you can donate these small amounts of shares to them. And they'll aggregate all these and then they'll sell them on once they've got enough to make a cost-effective trade. And then they give that money to charity themselves. And you can contact them to make suggestions about where the money might go. I thought it was a really nice sort of thing to do. Um, they've raised £32 million to date, which I thought is very good. And if if you don't want to donate to charity that there are a few stockbrokers investment platforms which run occasional schemes where you can sell small amounts of shares probably up to about a couple hundred quid or something without having to pay these fees so they, they tend to run it around the springtime it's kind of like spring cleaning your portfolio um so i imagine you, it's probably a good time to watch out for that now um of course you could sell it and you could make your own personal donation to charity if you so wish but i think you know it's, it's just a nice little thing that happens um and a, a, it's a good way of cleaning up your portfolio if you've got little tiny tiddlers and they don't really want And so just before we go, Laura, so tell us why is popcorn in fashion and envelopes are out? That seems an odd thing to put into a financial podcast. It
0: does have a financial link, I promise. (laughs) Um, So inflation... Uh, is calculated based on a basket of goods and every so often they change that basket of goods. And it's a really interesting, I mean that sounds quite boring, but it's a really interesting insight into how habits in the UK change and the kind of products that are in fashion and out of fashion and um, what's used now. Because essentially what they're trying to do is track the price of goods that most people will use or that are most popular. So they've just come out with their latest kind of rebalancing and included for the first time is popcorn, which is now... As everyone will know, having gone into a supermarket, a snack alongside crisps. Um, Peanut butter is in, and bakeware is in, which is thought to be down to the rise in popularity of baking from things like Bake Off programs like that. And portable speakers and smart speakers are in, as more people use things like Spotify and um, the Amazon Alexa smart speaker thing. Uh, And then things that are out, a three-piece suite, that's outdated now. Apparently no one buys them. Terrible.
1: What do do we sit on at home Mm. then? Single sofas, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) which
0: I guess is a sign of maybe smaller living spaces and people are just buying one sofa rather than buying a full three-piece suite. I definitely could not fit a three-piece suite into my flat. It would look ridiculous. Um, Washing powder is out and washing liquid is in Um, and a crockery set is out. So people don't buy full crockery sets anymore. They just buy Dinner plates.
2: Oh Ryan, why why aren't you buying any crockery recently? Well, it feels like an episode of the generation game. Yeah. We need we need to remember a whole different set of Cuddly things that go, that go across. Yeah. I don't <laughs> know.
0: Um, envelopes are out as well, which I was quite surprised by because I would think that they were still fairly in use, but I guess not.
1: I don't know. Uh, yesterday I called up a company which I will not name and shame, but I said, I'm trying to find the access to my account. I've forgotten the the login details i said can you search for it if i give you my postcode and the person on the other end of the phone said i'm really sorry i don't know what a postcode is and i wonder what yeah well i wonder (laughs) is that because there's now a generation who don't write letters um and they don't need to know how you know the the structure of of putting something onto an envelope i don't know maybe uh, maybe you should have
2: hashtagged it they might have understood (laughs) it then (laughs) hashtag postcode yeah Yeah.
1: (laughs) But I mean, last year, there were some quite strange ones you know, coming in and out of these inflation baskets. Um, you'd wonder whether they were, um, you know, talking about the a different generation, but it was um, chilled mashed potato coming in, um, which I thought was a bit... Bit odd I point. want
0: the pre-prepared stuff. Uh, it must, you it must be,
1: going down ah. m and to buy that rather than making wow. it yourself. Um, so that replaced things like pork pies and lager sold in nightclubs. So um, <laughs> it's quite, <laughs> quite funny. <laughs> and you know, things like leg waxing, cash machine charges and Edam cheese, they've all been kicked out as well. So,
2: yeah, it is.
1: It's really interesting, isn't it? <laughs>
2: It's an insight into our our consumer habits, (laughs) some of which sound very sad that they've gone.
1: Mm. That's it for this week. Next week, we've got an ISA special looking at everything to do with all forms of ISA and how you invest through them. So let us know if you've got any particular questions or topics you want us to cover within that. Um, Email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk. See you next week. Bye. Bye.
0: Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply.